0: This is the Killer Chronicles. It was July 28, 1994, and Chattanooga area ATF agent Jack Scott was getting ready to make an arrest based on a lengthy undercover investigation that started nine months earlier in McMinn County, Tennessee. The main target was Ronnie Basil Jr., a 19-year-old with just one misdemeanor arrest under his belt Who'd sold little bags of crack cocaine to undercover agents Robert Burnett and Arthur Galleon during regular meetups that started the previous summer. By all accounts, Basil was a small-time dealer who charged barely more than what he paid, and in every single one of his dealings with the undercovers he had shorted them, at one point boldly passing off 1.8 grams of crack as a quarter ounce. Basil didn't know it at the time, But when Scott placed him into handcuffs that day and took him to Hamilton County federal detention, it was to be his last day as a free man. He was hit with a 20-count indictment, including crack distribution and possessing a 9mm pistol that he attempted to sell to the agents. Basil was charged with possessing more than 50 grams of crack cocaine for distribution, which back in 1994 made him eligible for mandatory minimum sentencing laws under federal statutes. He pleaded guilty and was sentenced to a decade in prison, with a projected release date in May 2003. Nowadays, Basil would have had to sell more than five times the amount of crack to qualify for the same prison term, after Congress passed the Fair Sentencing Act in 2010. Basil would never live to see his projected release date. Just two years to the month before he was to be freed, he was stabbed to death with a prison-made ice pick by a man who served as an enforcer for the Gangster Disciples, a notorious criminal organization that started in Chicago in the 1960s, but now has a presence coast to coast. The murder sparked an FBI investigation, a criminal indictment, and a federal lawsuit that only came about after an infamous convicted cop-killer attempted to expose what he believed was a government cover-up inside the prison over ignored warning signs. You've probably never heard of Basil's murder because, despite its salacious nature, the gang connection, and the controversy that followed the case, it received virtually no media attention. And, like many of our stories, this one is a tragedy from every possible angle, so fair warning on that. Basil spent May 28, 2001, the last day of his life, gambling at a Monopoly table inside FCI Edgefield in South Carolina a medium-security federal prison with a population of roughly 1,700 inmates. He ran out of money around 2.15 p.m. and got up to leave, possibly to return to his cell. That's when he was approached by Willie Earl Clark, a 53-year-old repeat offender who'd already served a 10-year prison term for murder in Illinois and went by the nickname Stonewall. Clark was brandishing a nine-and-a-half-inch weapon that inmates and guards alike described as a contraband ice pick. Basil saw the threat coming and never even tried to fight back. He turned on a dime and ran down a hallway, yelling, quote, Someone get this crazy man. He's trying to stab me. Clark caught up with him and struck him once in the chest with the weapon, piercing his heart and sealing his fate. As Basil fell, Clark smiled at him, quote, "'Your history, motherfucker, your history,' he said." Quote, "'Nobody messes with Stonewall.'" Basil was pronounced dead at 3.11 p.m., less than an hour after he was stabbed. In many ways, Clark was the polar opposite of Basil. In contrast to Basil's single conviction, Clark had been arrested 38 times since 1965. All 38 arrests were in Chicago, the city where the gangster disciples were founded, and most of them were for violent offenses. Clark beat people, he robbed people, he threatened people, and on May 20, 1980, he murdered someone. In that instance, he was at a restaurant on Madison and Western Streets in Chicago when an acquaintance, Willie Davis, slapped Clark's girlfriend during an argument. Clark grabbed a knife and stabbed Davis repeatedly, then fled the area. In a plea deal, he was sentenced to 10 years in prison, but by 1987 had been released on parole. On July 27th that year, just four blocks from where he murdered Willie Davis, Clark discharged a World War II era German Luger pistol at a woman named Brenda Smith. A patrol officer, Edward Kopsky, heard the shot and arrested Clark. The feds took over his case, and after serving as his own attorney, Clark was convicted and sentenced to 25 years. Throughout his criminal history, Clark's mental health was a frequent topic of debate. Some said he was delusional, possibly schizophrenic, while others said he was merely a narcissist who suffered from antisocial personality disorder, a fairly common diagnosis amongst jail and prison inmates. One thing almost all agreed on. Clark was paranoid, saw plots against him everywhere, and didn't see violence against law enforcement as an impenetrable line. During a 1990 probation interview before his federal sentence, Clark asked the interviewing officer if he thought he should have murdered his arresting officer, Edward Kopsky. Meanwhile, at FCI Edgefield, the Bureau of Prisons and the FBI tried to get to the bottom of what had happened. The perpetrator was obvious, Clark's actions were witnessed by a guard, and he dropped the weapon and surrendered almost immediately. He also confessed, but at one point claimed that he stabbed Basil only after Basil raised a coffee mug at him. He said that he'd caught Basil peeping in his room, and went so far to claim that Basil had even sexually assaulted him in his sleep. When asked how he got the weapon, Clark lost his taste for discussion. Quote, If I say someone gave it to me, then I have a co-defendant, and I can't have that he said. The FBI and BOP interviewed more than 25 inmates about the stabbing. Though many claimed not to have witnessed Basil getting killed, a few described how Basil had a smile on his face when Clark first accosted him that afternoon, but then grew frightened and tried to flee when he saw the shiny ice pick in Clark's hand. The prison rumor mill had already started to churn out possible motives. Clark and Basil had a dispute about Basil entering his cell, Basil had threatened Clark with a plastic eating utensil in the chow hall. Clark simply wanted to kill anyone, so he'd get transferred out of Edgefield. But as the interviews progressed, two themes seemed to consistently emerge. The first one had to do with the Gangster Disciples, a massive criminal organization that was well on its way to building the 50-state empire the gang maintains today. The Gangster Disciples started as a typical street gang in the 1960s in Chicago but mostly because of the will of one man, its leader, Larry King Hoover. Hoover was convicted of murder in the 1970s, but continued to run the gang from state prison, implementing a corporate-like structure. Despite his confinement, he was able to achieve something rare, unity among different criminal organizations, which Hoover coalesced under an umbrella known as the Folk Nation. Hoover wrote literature entitled Blueprint of the New Concept, which spelled out rules for folk nation members, governing not just typical gang activity, but things like hygiene, literacy, and even a prohibition on littering. In the late 1990s, the federal government ramped up prosecution of the gangster disciples, with the hope of taking its leaders out of Illinois. But this allowed the gang to spread throughout the federal prison system. F.C.I. Edgefield was one of many prisons with a strong gangster disciple's presence, and the gang raked in money through illegal drug sales, extortion, and Basil's vice—gambling. That's apparently what gave the gang a motive to go after Basil. Authorities were told that he racked up a sizable gambling debt to the gangster disciples, and they'd killed him to dissuade others from owing the gang. That information came from multiple inmates, But most notably from Preston Smalls, a self-admitted gangster disciple who told authorities that the gang's chief of security, nicknamed Double O, had dispatched Stonewall to kill Basil after he failed to pay back 18 stamp books he owed. Clark had apparently gotten the ice pick from another gangster disciple member, named Chester, who was known as something of a weapons specialist in the prison. The other recurring theme was that Clark had started making it known that he was planning to kill someone about a month earlier, when he was sent to the Segregated Housing Unit, or SHU, for fighting back when an inmate struck him with a broom handle. Several inmates said that Clark talked specifically about killing Basil, and at least two of them reported that Clark told Basil, quote, I told you I was gonna kill you, as Basil lay dying. Despite all of this eyewitness evidence, the recovery of the murder weapon, and Clark's own confession, no charges were filed in Basil's killing up to this point. But the BOP did transfer Clark to the most secure prison on U.S. soil, ADX Florence, where Clark underwent a mental health diagnosis that found him, quote, "...suffering from a severe mental illness, and unable to function in a normal prison environment." A doctor who evaluated Clark recommended inpatient treatment and medication. Back in Tennessee, Basil's family received a major shock on June 8, 2001, when a letter arrived addressed to his grandmother from a fellow inmate inside the prison, greeting the family, quote, in the name of God and all of our ancestors. The note's author said that while he didn't know Basil, he wanted to assure them of one thing. Quote, Ron was not murdered for anything wrong done on his part. To the assailant, the administration is 150% liable for not protecting Ron. The note revealed that Basil's killer was a gangster disciple who said, quote, at least a hundred times that he was going to kill somebody in the days leading up to the murder. Quote, no one listened or cared. My unit manager got him out of her unit and put him in Ron's unit. According to the note, the cover-up inside the prison had already begun, and the administrators were circling the wagon in anticipation of having to shift blame from themselves in court. The note's apparent author was no stranger to controversy. It was signed Jaime A. Davidson, a reggaeton artist and cocaine kingpin who is serving life for allegedly ordering a robbery that led to an undercover New York police officer being murdered. Davidson, a.k.a. Stringer, was sentenced in 1993 and had become very politically active behind bars. Side note, his sentence was commuted by then-President Trump in January 2020 and is now a free man. Davidson's note had its desired effect. Five months after receiving it, Basil's family had lawyered up and filed a legal claim against the prison, then followed it up with a lawsuit the following year. When the suit was filed, in October 2002, Clark still hadn't been indicted for Basil's murder, though authorities said in court records that they were planning on it. The lawsuit was short-lived. The prison's warden, chief psychologist, and numerous staff all filed sworn statements saying they never heard anything about Clark wanting to, quote, catch a body, and that before the murder occurred, he seemed like no more of a threat than any of the other inmates. They called the murder nothing more than a result of a spontaneous argument between two prisoners. A senior officer specialist described Clark as a cordial individual, and the chief psychologist wrote in a sworn statement, There is no way prison staff could have foreseen Mr. Clark would assault and kill Mr. Basil. Mr. Clark never displayed any evidence of mental illness or homicidal ideation. Lawyers for the federal government also wrote that Clark's subsequent diagnosis of severe mental illness was irrelevant, even though it was based upon an examination that occurred just months after the murder. Finally, they argued that the prison still had discretion to move Clark wherever the warden saw fit. A judge agreed, and citing the federal law that gave prison officials huge amounts of discretion in placing prisoners, ordered the lawsuit be dismissed barely a year after it was filed. That's where things stayed for a full year, until December of 2004, when the U.S. Attorney's Office in South Carolina charged Clark with murder, possessing a prison weapon, and making a false statement to the FBI. Specifically, Clark's claim that Basil had raped him. The indictments referred to Clark as an enforcer for the gangster disciples and mentioned that the gang had a drug ring operating within Edgefield Prison. A clear implication that the FBI and BOP had determined that the murder was not, in fact, a simply spontaneous stabbing like the feds argued in the lawsuit. Like he had done in his last federal case 17 years earlier, Clark attempted to serve as his own attorney, writing incoherent legal motions from his cell and making various demands of prosecutors, all of which were denied. On the prosecution side, almost every single court document was filed under seal at the government's request. Four years after the indictment was filed, Clark agreed to plead guilty to murder. All that was left was for the judge to pronounce the sentence. For murdering Basil, Clark received the exact same sentence that Basil had been given in 1994 as a 19-year-old caught selling small amounts of crack to undercover cops. 10 years in federal prison, to run concurrently with the gun possession sentence he was already serving. Clark was released from prison in 2019, at 73 years old, with more than half his life spent behind bars. As the process of freeing Clark and setting him up on federal probation was going through, court records revealed what had been obvious for decades. Clark was severely mentally ill, and had finally been diagnosed with schizophrenia, delusional disorder, psychotic disorder, and a host of other illnesses that had collectively led to prison officials being approved to forcefully medicate him starting in 2015. The last filing in Clark's case stated that just a month after his release, he was taken to a hospital for a serious medical episode that incapacitated him. That's it for now. If you have any stories that you would like us to cover, tell us about them. Thank you for listening, and please like and subscribe.